Before we start today's show, I want to give a shout out to our partners for this podcast, Vitality. They are an essential part of me being able to facilitate these conversations. I've been an ambassador now with Vitality for several years and always the one thing that stands out most for me is just how much they care about people's health and are so keen to enhance their experience of life whatever way they can. They understand as much as I do. I think it's never about quick fixes or the one pill fixes everything. It's about the small, healthy, proactive behaviours sustained through a lifetime that can lead to incredible differences. Not only does Vitality protect members with award-winning cover, but they also offer discounts on gym membership, trainers, activity trackers and healthy food too. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, welcome back to I Am, the podcast that explores the possibilities and potential that we can access as human beings. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to Matt Selway, who is a lecturer at the University of York, St. John. His speciality is all around topics of cinema and media. I was really interested in his research into the impact of media in all its forms, upon society and mental health. He was a great guest for helping me to look a bit deeper into the role of our news, film and social network industry upon guiding and limiting our growth and potential. Just to let you know that I always release an episode early in the week, a few days before the main guest interview becomes available. And in this sort of 10 to 20 minute slot, I attempt to set the scene for the upcoming conversation and share some of my own ideas and thoughts as well. So I'm gone for it pretty hard on this one. You probably guess it's been a big old part of my journey and something that I've loved exploring and definitely will continue to. But Matt himself, when talking about the media and its effect, brings a lot of this up in me. He's got a humble, very interesting take on it all and the way that it shapes our world. But him and I also get to indulge in some ideas about how, as agents for great change, we also get to decide what the future looks like in this space which is such an exciting concept definitely definitely worth looking into i think i hope you enjoy the chat coming up on thursday as ever let me know what you think and also if you've got any ideas for topics and areas you feel would be worth having a crack at i'm really enjoying hearing from anyone listening in so do not hesitate to email me on hello at iampodcast.co.uk or just leave a comment in the review section on Apple Podcasts. We've had amazing guest suggestions that we're following up on all the time and actually bringing into being as well. So please chip in with whatever you've got. We have a specific recording for answering questions coming up soon as well. But uh, more than anything, thank you for your support. Wishing you well and asking you also to go easy on yourselves and enjoy life too. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Matt Selway. Mr. Matt Selway, this is a really exciting conversation I've been looking forward to. I think you hold a lot of knowledge that I don't. So this is a big research moment for me, but yeah, one I'm really, really intrigued by. So how are you? And thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. I've been trying to sort of take it easy today, just kind of not let anticipation of our chat kind of get, get too overwhelming. I can sort of get carried away with excitement sometimes. So I've tried to just keep it relatively calm throughout the day, but I'm, I'm well, thank you. We don't mind excitement in this space. Let that passion go, let it all out. So can you give us a bit of a 
background. What is your speciality, your passion, and what's your day-to-day life in that respect? So I'm a senior lecturer in media and communications and also in film studies. And I work at a medium-sized university called York St. John. And at York St. John, I I teach on both programs, but across media and film as subject areas. What I tend to spend most of my day-to-day research-wise doing is trying to understand and ask more pertinent questions about the relationship between media as a concept and the kind of relationship it has to mental health and in particular mental ill health. Most of my written publications have been largely framed around cinema, trying to understand how fiction film, usually films based on true life stories, but we would still consider that fiction for the most part, how they construct representations of particular mental disorders or mental ill health issues. But also I do a lot more kind of hands-on research for teaching about things like social networking, journalism, and the kind of representation in non-fiction contexts as well. But everything that I do day to day is largely revolving around either teaching, reading, or writing about mental health and its relationship to culture, media, and representation and language. So that's beautiful. There's, there's loads and loads and loads and loads for me to get into there. But something just came to me then as you're speaking. Is it hard to forget now that you kind of have this deeper level of maybe awareness and research into that area? Can you, can you have that ignorance anymore of just, you know, just letting it be entertainment or buying into any of those things? You know, has it changed your life in that way? It comes and goes, I think, it, you know, in many respects. For a very long time, I couldn't let go. Which I know sort of as someone who has been a rugby fan, you know, for full transparency, I'm a big rugby fan. So I know a fair bit about you and the England team and things like that. And having sort of seen things you've done since, you know, leaving rugby, I know that that's something maybe that you quite resonate with is I was so in it that actually the whole purpose of kind of film and TV and box sets and things like that, that are primarily entertainment, you can lose that. You certainly can. And over time, I have gotten better at being able to kind of indulge more in the things that I don't primarily research. But yeah, certainly whenever something is particularly relevant to kind of what I write about and what I teach about, it can be really hard. And like you said, yeah. it can sort of poke its nose in and creep in a little bit. And in my, you know, my personal life, probably longer than I've ever had a diagnosis, I've had like mental health issues myself. People often think that it's some sort of like what I do research-wise is some sort of autobiographical. It's like, oh, I have depression and anxiety disorder, so that's why I do what I do. It's actually completely coincidental. But it does mean that sort of you have to sort of set boundaries with yourself about not sort of working too hard or too much in that area for the sake of being able to have that separation. So it's difficult for sure, but that's true of any, you know, our students experience that as well, whether they love horror films or Japanese, you know, anime or anything like that. You can get sucked into the things you're really passionate about and almost lose the fact that they're entertainment. So I always try and take my own advice that I give to students, which is remember there are things that you can just enjoy for the sake of enjoying them. You don't have to, you don't have to overturn every stone as it were, but that's a learning process that I've had to go through with experience. So the reason for me, I'm so interested in the media side of things is because when we're talking about potential, we can't help but talk about limits that I guess is your your kind of opposites of the scale or even your kind of necessary to have growth. You must talk about limits. And a lot of where those limits come in is talking about conditioning, preset or preconceived ideas, conclusions that have been made, 
be them emotional kind of reactions in the past that just sit in the body or be them kind of intellectual reasonings or deductions that sort of just find their way to a deeper meaning than just playing with understandings. They actually, they become something which holds, you know, some kind of great secret about worth or whatever it is. And when it comes to the media, for me, what I've been noticing is sort of the reason for that first question is having sort of triggered a bit more of an awareness about how everything seems to work around me. It's quite difficult to just read a paper now without kind of looking and thinking, what you know, what's going on here? Or, or look at the news and think, well, hold on, and, and have so many questions, 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 questions that just can't be answered when you're just someone at home absorbing it or taking it in or watching it and observing it. So I'm interested in the media as an influence, constant and just looking at how big and wide-ranging that influence is. I mean, what is the case when you're looking at media, for example, now in the the news, written media, the kind of reporting of events style media, how big a role is that playing, do you think, in lives, in our lives? There's no doubt in my mind that it, it plays a really significant part, whether we want it to or not. And I think one thing that you said there that I think is really important is the specificity of what we mean when we talk about media. You know, you said a newspaper, news reporting, journalism. And, and I think what can sometimes happen, like you said, we are saturated by media at the moment of all different types. And what can tend to happen in kind of popular discussions, and by that I mean sort of non-academic discussions when people are just chatting about life and current affairs and things like that, is I think this idea of media can become this kind of monolith or it can become a bit sort of perceived as some kind of simplistic homogenous entity. And it, obviously what I do in terms of looking at cinema when, I, when I'm in that space is really very, very different to when I look at things like journalism and news. And I, I do teach a whole module to undergraduate students called Media, Publics and Power that's all about our relationship to the world being presented to us through particularly journalism and news reporting and trying to get people to ask more critical questions about their relationship to that. But I think at the moment, whether it's reading a paper, I think the fact of the matter is there's multiple ways to read a paper. Now, you can have the physical artifact, as it were, but you can subscribe to the, the Washington Post on your iPad. And I think the way you consume that information can be just as important as actually the information that's being conveyed to you. I think one thing I notice a lot about trying to make sense of the world through the sheer amount of different takes there are on supposedly the same thing, and certainly recently, over the last couple of years in particular, I think those of us in Britain and Europe, there's not an awful lot of positivity sort of smacking us around the chops, as it were, from the mainstream media. There's a lot of, you know, that's why we have conversations around social media and sites like Twitter and Instagram, terms like doom scrolling. You know, those have kind of been generated to describe this sense of being lost in a kind of black hole of endless algorithm-driven information. So I think trust has become harder, certainly with the, you know, the kind of the moral anxieties around fake news, just how intense a kind of concern that has become, you know, sort of even from quite established mainstream institutions that for maybe decades, maybe even more than a century have been distributing our current affairs to us. It's become harder to kind of differentiate what we kind of consider to be legitimate and illegitimate. And I think ultimately, just like with having to be a bit more specific about the type of media we talk about, 
I think we have to try and reframe our thought process about how we relate to that by moving away from kind of binary understandings of is this trustworthy or untrustworthy? Is this accurate or inaccurate? Is it legitimate or illegitimate? These might sound synonymous, but actually they're all slightly different framings of how we relate to that information. And the honest truth of the matter is, for most of us, there will always be a degree of uncertainty because even the most fact-checked, the most carefully researched information that is distributed has to be translated to us in some way. And that's the area of, of media studies that really, really speaks to me and fascinates me is it's all about what happens in the middle between at least two points of receiving and conveying, usually more than two points. Like I said, it's not usually a binary at all, but it's how do you translate something like an idea or a feeling into something that someone else can understand and is tangible for them? And when it is revolves around these big issues in the world around us, you know, whether it's politics or the environment, economics, anything, it becomes incredibly hard. And I certainly think that's become more amplified in the contemporary era, for sure. It's really, it's really interesting because when I was younger, going down, you know, to a sort of fairly young age now, the media, if you said to me, what's the role of it? As a young kid, I'd have been straight down the line. They tell us what's happening around the world where we can't be to see it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's what the basis of it is. And I was so sort of clear on that until I got to school and started studying a bit of history and was quite fascinated by the world wars. And of course, that was the first time I came about this understanding of the propaganda war. And suddenly you kind of think, oh, yeah, how interesting that we would use media to our own agenda. But of course, the older I've gotten through those stages, the, the more I buy into what you're saying. And that as you pass these messages along a line, the filters leave their mark on it or shift it or change it. I don't want to say sort of infect it in any way because it's, it's a bit strong. It sounds almost too deliberate, but you can't help but have it reshaped by the the vessel and the filter that belongs to the person you look at sort of the ideas of all the messengers of religion at the very basis the message is just infinite but then down the line you have things that are working for personal gain which you can adapt to message any old way and I think that's been really interesting I'd say what do you think as a complex question and a bigger picture is the role of the media right now again I, th I think that comes down to the question of what type of media we're talking about. And for me, I think you made some really perceptive observations there, actually, that I think every one of us at one time or another, certainly from a young age, we're not encouraged to think very critically about you know what the media as a presence or an entity is. But certainly in terms of things like propaganda or agenda setting and things like that, certainly with current affairs, political communications, business, commerce, those types of spheres or institutions i think firstly there used to be a very long-standing accepted wisdom in academia as well like you said the word infect as this kind of assumption about this you know very kind of it is a slightly rudimentary or simplified understanding of like how we exist in relation to media but in the early days of trying to understand you know think about cinema for instance cinema is a relatively new media in it might not seem it, it's over 100 years old but 
you know, if we think about media, like I said, about being that middle point where ideas are conveyed, that goes back to cave painting. Yeah. And so like you know, the history and evolution of media is enormous. And trying to understand the kind of mass communications potential of media when that really sort of started to arise in the wake of radio, television and cinema, there was a really quite established set of research publications that believed in what was called the hypodermic needle model. This came out of a faculty in a university in Frankfurt, so it's referred to as the Frankfurt School of Thinking, where scholars there tried to understand the role of these new mass communications media. And often the conclusions were very similar to what you described, which is that people in positions of power with wealth and resources to produce TV shows and advertisements and print newspapers, they get to set the agenda and they get to kind of tell us what to think. And don't get me wrong, that's a, I'm oversimplifying it there. You know, there'll be me, other media scholars, if they happen to stumble across this, waving their arms in the air at that slightly <laughs> oversimplistic co- um, And there were elements of truth to that in, to an extent, but a lot of that wasn't necessarily backed up by empirical research. And used to actually, one of the complaints that came up in the wake of that model of thinking that then gave way to a slightly more diverse model of thinking was that actually we as audiences are far more discerning and always have been more discerning than that assumption gives us credit for. That propaganda was incredibly influential, incredibly powerful as a tool. But if there's a need for the existence of anti-propaganda, if something like the World Wars, Britain and the Allies having to produce messages that they felt countered that that was being propagandized by their enemy, then there must be at least some implicit understanding that people can make their own minds up and you're trying to distribute that to coerce, coerce might sound a little bit kind of simplistic again, but to convince people to think differently about the issues at hand, whether it's a war or whether it's any other sort of political or social issue. So I think there's always been some sort of implicit understanding that audiences are actually far more diverse. We do think differently. We do disagree with one another. And we have, for the most part, enough skills in media literacy to make up our own mind. And that hypodermic needle model, this idea of sort of ideology being injected into society through, you know, one message broadcast to thousands, millions of people potentially, it is important to understand how influential that could be. But again, the kind of common sense understanding of that became a little bit distorted, that that actually it's very overwhelming to all of us. And what has come more recently than that is instead looking at what's called the uses and gratifications idea, which instead of looking at what small amounts of people are doing when they produce media, it's why don't we completely reverse that and think instead, why do people go to the media that they do? What do they use it for? So your example of like, can you read a paper and deal with the bigger questions of life? The answer is almost certainly no, not in isolation, but also the the question there is like, which paper do you even pick? When there's so many, and we know that they're not all just giving us the same facts and information. Like you said, there is a sort of distortion. And that uses and gratifications idea was very much built on the ideas that the media inherently is a distortion. And I don't just mean that in terms of mass communication. When I said earlier that like the thing about media that really fascinates me is how do you take something intangible and subjective like an idea or a feeling? The minute I try to translate it to you through language... I am mediating that experience to you. Those words don't naturally connect to anything that I feel. They don't naturally connect to anything that I'm thinking in terms of an idea. 
But by trying to convey that to you in a way that might make sense, that hopefully creates more empathy between us, I am mediating and I'm inherently distorting the intangible idea into something structured that hopefully you can connect with, make sense of, and and have a kind of empathetic relationship to. And I think, so the role of the media really is whatever we want it to be. If we take that yeah. uses and gratifications idea, we actually have more agency in our relationship to that than I think we're often given credit for. But also I think we have as much agency as we're aware of. That's certainly true, yeah. The other thing that I think has been quite interesting for me is I remember certain times I've been privy to news broadcasting at key moments when there's been an event and that event creates some kind of almost palpable anxiety or energy in the air and it really reminds me of almost like the white coat syndrome that people are watching the tv or reading papers or listening to each other in a forced open state where you feel yourself being vulnerable, susceptible, because you're you're in that state of awe and shock. We don't know where you are. And, and whatever goes in at that time goes in deep, deeper than you realise, I think. It can become sort of self-fulfilling, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. ideas are betrayed. And I think with the the type of energy that's been around, you mentioned the last few years, especially, although yeah, that might be doing a disservice to the fact it's been around, I think, for a long, long time. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, energies of instability and, and insecurity and lack of self-worth. You mentioned the mental health and ill health side of things. You know, I'm, I too, similar to yourself, have, have my experiences in that area. And that reporting, therefore, in those times is so powerful. Mm. Just powerful in terms of it's going to have an effect and it, and that effect may last for years. It may, who knows how it's going to come out, but that key time when you're open, you're susceptible, the messaging you're getting when it's stark and it's black and white and it's driven in with a point that says, this is how it is. Those moments can last forever. And I wonder if when you're talking about the agency, the other thing that comes to mind is that you mentioned about that kind of key figure at the top who has that resource and that, the ownership of media who's able to set the agenda, I sort of feel that applies to a Machiavellian kind of figure that has the all-knowing wisdom but decides anyway to just play it this way. But in fact, I think we're all susceptible. We all think we're doing the right thing. We're all saying stuff that we think, like you said, you've got that feeling and this is the best I've got and someone's told me this and this is how I understand it and I'm telling you it exactly as they told me, but it's not. I think there's a flawed nature of how we all are in terms of trying to be a pure vehicle for any message. It just isn't the case. We do, yeah, I'm going to use Invect again, but we do kind of imprint upon it so much of what we don't know is going on deeper. And if there is kind of, you know, you mentioned about what paper you go to within the different papers or the different news channels or the different, whether it's coming from slightly more left and liberal, right and conservative, wherever it's coming from, how much do you think they differ? How much do people actually consciously differ from another in order to provide, like you said, an attractive proposition to a different readership to convince, to create, albeit with good intentions, a certain kind of environment versus the other one. You're absolutely right, first of all, about this idea that like that uncertainty and anxiety is certainly not just the last few years. I think it's amplified, particularly visible across a range of platforms the last couple of years. But I think 
human nature, if there is such a homogenous thing. I think there's been a very long track record of any given contemporary society having anxiety and uncertainty about the kind of the changes that are happening before them. And I think that is one thing, if I can answer what is the role of the media, I think certainly in the minds of many populations, one of the things that makes the media so powerful is the sense that you're seeing the world changing before your eyes. And that can be a really daunting thing. Like you said, it can hit us on a really profound human level. And I think if you look at an industry like, say, journalism and current affairs, there is a great deal of awareness within those industries about the kind of different demographics that they largely speak to, and therefore like hiring choices, the types of framing that a particular issue or story might get. I think that there is a lot of self-awareness within those industries, and and great efforts are made to create an established identity in any given, you know, whether it's, like you said, left or right or liberal conservative, these descriptors, whatever they kind of really mean, most institutions tend to carefully construct their position within that market. Because ultimately it is a market. It is driven by money and driven by sales and impressions and metrics to keep those publications and those channels in business. And so a great deal of care is made to differentiate from one another. And it is a very kind of ring-fenced industry in that regard. So I think there's a lot of self-awareness within the kind of journalism and public affairs sector that there is an imperative to maintain some sense of recognisability to what is considered to be like the key demographic or the core demographics, plural, of who that readership, that viewership who they're trying to engage. There's tons of research that those institutions do to make sure and monitor and track that they're doing that. So I think there's a great deal of diversity and variety there in trying to solidify distinctions between themselves. And that does mean, like you said, we have just more uncertainty of choice and more uncertainty of where we go to for the information that we, that we think is useful. I think it's, it's interesting as well, because whether it be even the way that your favourite sort of program if it's current affairs is framed or or articulated or even just dressed up you'll go to it because almost like an author of a of like you mentioned at the beginning when you were telling us about what you're doing you know that kind of fictional side you're like you go to an author of your fictional because like, you love the way they tell the story mm-hmm. and it's almost the same in a way that you go to certain kind of news publications i love the way they write about it i love the way they you actually know, as you said, to give them credit when we're talking about this thing about the propaganda side is that actually at some deep level, we're actually knowing that it's been not necessarily spun, but it's been packaged up in a certain way. And we like it. We like the packaging. We don't necessarily, are we actually going for what's in the package or are we going for the package itself? You know, as something you like to read on a Sunday, I like the way they get in at this and I like the person's, because what you're saying is about the person that writes, I like the way they do it, which means I'm actually really buying into the person here Mm -hmm. versus the factual, often sort of try and get people to sometimes as part of an exercise to talk about their, their day and see how, clearly you can leave it to the purely factual and see it's so difficult not to bring in story because and when you because it's almost like an impatience of like it's so boring when I don't okay so I drove the car to here 
and I parked it at this time and then I walked to here and it's so easy to slip up and then say this happened I met this person who was a bit like this you're like sorry no you met this person okay keep it right down the line so you do you need your day to have that story that slight sensationalism how much of that do you think is is in it how much of you know are they supplying our demand or are, are they supplying to what they know we'll buy into I think there's an element of both of those processes happening. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy or a snowball that gets larger the more it, it we go through that cycle. I certainly do think there's been a noticeable convergence between the way that current affairs... I, I agree entirely. I think we do gravitate towards particular personalities within current affairs and media that, like you said, they might write or speak in a, in a way that really kind of chimes with us, relating to all sorts of arbitrary personal experiences, cultural, social factors. And I think in particular, if you look at, say, the USA at the moment, and I mean, for quite a long time, truth be told, you know, we have TV programs that are straddling very consciously between being current affairs and entertainment. In Britain, we have shows like Have I Got News For You, for instance. And in the USA, they have things like Saturday Night Live that regularly reflects on really pertinent, important topics of the day and some of the most pressing issues that people face, but are doing so through the vessel of comedy and satire and parody. And so I think the distinctions that we can make between like this is journalism and this is the mainstream media and entertainment, you're totally right. The boundaries between those are completely intertwined now and, and you can't really pinpoint distinct boundaries to the point where we have if i take the example of say like have i got news for you we have our mps go on that program and rub shoulders with comedians to try and give a sense of who they are outside of just the strictly political on things that they have to work on we have journalists who go onto that program as well and yeah you know ian hislop is the the editor of private eye a publication that is as divisive as it gets in terms of one's political leanings so Certainly, in the contemporary moment, we're at a real height because then you only have to go onto something like, say, Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. And what you see is people translating the current affairs that they're experiencing through other platforms into memes and into amusing videos. But what we're also seeing is that those institutions then crop up with their own Twitter page and their own. Most MPs these days have a Twitter page and will try and get involved in that process of like being part of the exchange to try and tap into that entertainment factor. So it is increasingly that we do want to be entertained. Like you said, you can't just stick to the facts out of habit a lot of the time because as a developed species, we're incredibly diverse, but for the most part, narrative is very comforting. Narrative makes sense to us in lots of respects. We see slightly different versions of very similar narratives recirculated, slightly tweaked, slightly adapted all of the time. That's why slightly more experimental films, music, social media profiles, those that are pushing the boundaries of like our expectations, what the conventions are of any given platform or genre, tend to be more limited in who they reach and resonate with because most of us, we are very familiar with the kind of narrative structures that make our lives more interesting. And we can't just deal purely in objective facts. I think the self-fulfilling prophecy thing reminds me of when we're talking about potential the whole time of the cyclical nature and actually within the cycle of habits and 
and conclusions and, and belief systems is that those cycles actually slightly turn in on themselves each time that they wind. Because as you kind of, if you imagine sort of reinforcing the wall, you don't go outside your wall of safety to reinforce it from the outside. You stay inside it and you build from the inside. So naturally, you, as you keep reinforcing your ideas and, and like you said, you habitually and unconsciously, compulsively, you keep seeking the same satisfactions which aren't working or whatever, but you end up finding yourself with less and less space, but a speedier and like snowballing effect, as you mentioned, with that cycle, that it gets darker and darker. And at some point you kind of blame it on getting old or you blame it on the way that life is because you're not conscious of other choice. And looking at that, I'm sort of wondering that what role do we ourselves play in what sort of media we're creating? Because I'm sort of looking now as to think that these publications and and TV shows and broadcasts and what have you, they rely upon, as you said, metrics, numbers, figures, buy-in, advertising, just sheer weight of numbers and popularity. But as we move our choices, so does then those kind of products have to move with us as well. But as you said, we keep coming back to the same thing. And I'm wondering about whether it's us that are in that compulsive loop more because we're unable to break that cycle or whether it's that there's a certain way of keeping us in that loop. Yeah, an interesting one, like you said, in that energy of of now is looking at, yeah, perhaps with the anxiety around is that inside our own heads, we have this, if you want to get yourself to do something, all you have to do is put some fear around it. If I don't do this, this will happen. And all you have to do to get yourself to do it even more is if I don't do this, this will happen to someone I really care about, which is worse than it happening to you. And you kind of start to see things like that appearing in media to drive engagement in certain things or to drive kind of a shift towards certain things is that fear element which pushes you towards that sense of compliance when you're in that open space of not knowing what's going on. You don't have the ability to go and speak to everyone, but you get the impression that media somehow and yeah you know, a lot of the conversation we're having now it does sound like it's challenging media without sort of doing the celebratory part and, and that's obviously necessary to pay huge respect to that but I'm really interested in just the relationship we have with it I as a younger person definitely had this innate or inherent understanding that if it was on the news it almost been a consensus of everyone's opinion <laughs> like literally somehow they'd polled the entire population's opinion and this is what the truth is but of course you don't know how far that's gone it, it might just be one person who's been sent to an event who have they spoken to how have they spoken to them about it you know the questions that have been asked have they been leading it down the route that was wanting to go all these kind of things but it's interesting that for me have we seen a shift where because we change media is having to change I know we're seeing that already with people, I think, on the internet being able to, similar to this, I guess, in a way, share their own views, air their own views independently maybe of some of those influences, which is giving people choices of how they want to take media in, who they want to receive their kind of ideas and concepts from or inspirations or influences from. Is that happening now, what we're talking about? And can you know, are we actually in charge of maybe a bit more than we think of challenging that system that seems so powerful hugely so i definitely think so and certainly like you've already alluded to i think 
it's very easy to find oneself going down that track of being really pessimistic about the media and particularly when there is a lot of unrest and turmoil in a range of areas whether it be covid the environment politics when there is an abundance of that it can lead to this sort of tunnel vision that the kind of the, the media doesn't really have any sort of positive influence i actually have a great deal of optimism about our role in relation to media if i didn't i don't think i'd be able to do the job that i do i think it would just be too much it would be too intense to just turn up every week and teach students and read articles about how this thing that we study is just making the world worse. I think that would just be, it would be too terrible for me to be able to kind of continue doing that. I think absolutely we have an immense amount of agency, certainly with the kind of explosion of social networking, of digital availability. There is all sorts of potential there for people's creativity to be part of a much wider conversation. So, for instance, at the moment, without casting any judgment, because this is not about sort of personal politics, but we know that over the last couple of days, there's been a, a swathe of resignations of MPs in our political system. And the person who broke that story that has now led to the kind of domino effect of, of that being, it's all that my Twitter feed is showing me at the moment. The person who broke that story is a recent MA journalism graduate. From my understanding, how much I trust that information is, of course, yeah. you know, you take it with a little pinch of salt, but she's been in the job for like four days and she's a very recent graduate, but she's made a huge impact on this enormous event in an industry that, as I said, is relatively ring-fenced about sort of the relationships that journalists have to have to people of influence. They have to cultivate those and they have to take care of those relationships or else they find themselves not really having anything to trade. They have nothing to release. But there is potential for someone relatively new in the job who's just you know, qualified with a range of modern skills to come in and blow that up. And now my Twitter feed is showing me an abundance of that material because of somebody's initiative, because of somebody's creativity and their ability to use the skills that they've learned. So I'm really optimistic. I mean, I think it's always a good idea to have a healthy amount of cynicism, particularly about, like you said, the information that is given to us, whether it's online or whether it's through a, a respected newspaper. I think that's one of the key lessons we try and teach our students and convey in the, you know, our research and publications as a team at York St. John is just ha the more information that you can get, be engaged with other people's opinions, whether you agree with them or not. You might find there's common ground there. And actually, the wider you cast your net, the more informed a decision you can usually make. The risk is obviously with social media in particular that people get anxious about this idea of like an echo chamber, that we only listen to people who think the way we do, etc. But I'm really optimistic that we have a great deal of autonomy as individuals to use media creatively and use it in ways that are beneficial to us. I don't think that always necessarily plays out, but I think there is a lot to be celebrated about the current capabilities of our media infrastructure and certainly we all have the potential to benefit from that and to be part of benefiting others in that as well i think it could be an immensely empowering environment yeah i, I you know I, I really i really like that idea and i think i think it's really interesting because one of the things that is a big enhancer of that growth when you start to find yourself on a different path whether it be creating awareness extra awareness or whether it be deeper kind of acceptance about things and other people and then that ability to tune into a bit more of your passion so you can really follow that a lot of the really important and very I think valuable messaging is about 
who you surround yourself with in terms of those key influences and what you you surround yourself with and how you spend your time and what you're willing to listen to. And that's really, really powerful when you can actually have a say in creating those things that you want to listen to. But it's interesting because I, throughout my career, I wrote for three different papers. And in those three different papers, I had really great relationships with the journalists when you're chatting to them, because you see the human element, <laughs> you know, you're chatting there in, in a in a hotel room, and you're sort of talking through it and they can see that you're struggling. I mean, let's face it, I wrote so much that said nothing. That was the point. I filled up my word quota with trying to say as little as possible because my hands were largely tied. One, I wasn't even sure what I knew at that time. I was just a mess of extreme up and downs, which I wasn't going to talk about at that time. But also you're part of an organisation. You kind of like, you know that you're not going to say this against that because that's your livelihood but also that's what you the dream and you want to support people that's the team ethic and everything but then on the other side of the coin you also see in these journalists who also who are doing their best for you but they also have their hands tied by employers and often the article would go away and it'd be like yeah I'm happy with that after about <laughs> five times through word checking it and you know is this going to be okay is anyone going to be offended now I think it's all good and then it come back with a headline and you'd be like, oh my God, it was always the headline. But then the journalist would be like, it's not us that writes the headline. The headline is written by the headline writer. And of course, that's another thing. And the headline writer has to follow certain things to get the numbers in. And when you trace it up to the top guy, the top guy is also kind of like, well, I need to sell papers to keep the business going. And I've got everyone employed and I need to keep paying the salary. So at some point, everyone's doing the best they can according to those restrictions. I look at it from a team perspective of wanting the players in a team to be all at their very best. But the coach or the manager is kind of like, well, we need to win for me to keep my job. And if I can keep my job, I can keep doing a good job for you. By the end of it, that one condition turns everything. And that breaking that cycle as you're talking with that creativity, it requires a bit of vulnerability that sort of says, I have to be in a way prepared to be at my most creative, which may mean that I don't, I don't get to stay in this team. You know, for me, it's kind of like, if I want to go out there, I have to let go of all guarantees to be all of I, all that I can be now and just trust that that's going to be enough and trust that if it's not right for this situation, I'm put over here and ousted or whatever, then it's kind of like, but I'll follow that passion and I, and it will be part of creating my world. And that's a big, big move at the moment with all that unrest. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm interested, I guess, looking at this because that compulsion that everyone's tied to, I think, ways through to me reading it and when I'm reading it I might read about you know I used to not now and this isn't me just using this as a platform to kind of say that I don't do it now in any way but I used to be a big fan of the celebrity gossip culture hugely and I've no doubt looking back that a large part of it for me not saying it's at all this way for other people but a large part of it for me was it was I had a lot going on in me that I didn't like (laughs) so it was so much easier to judge other people and feel better about seeing other people dealing with it and be able to talk about other people and throw some ideas and some stuff out there about them. I'm just sort of looking at this other side of it as well that maybe going down and meeting the guys, it was good to read a bit of news in the paper and then you talk about a story you read and it suddenly made you like a bit more important to feel like, oh, well, I've got some facts here that I'm going to throw at you. What you're talking about, I think, requires a huge amount of awareness to step out of that compulsive zone and into that space of just like, it's okay to not know. It's great to not know. 
it's a beautiful space to be like, I don't know, but do you think there's any way that there can be that humility within the media? A humility to say, look, before we get going, can we just take it as read? We don't really know, but this is the best we've got. Or is that almost destroying it at the foundational level? No, I don't think it's destroying it at the foundational level. I certainly hope not. I, I hope that mo most people wouldn't take it that way. From within media creatives, media professionals, yeah, I'm not sure. I certainly hope so in terms of a kind of wider public, a wider audience. And certainly it's one of the things, again, that I work really closely with students on is saying, like, if you can learn to accept that what you're seeing is not just some sort of objective representation of truth. The idea of representation anyway defies that because it's the idea of representing something, yeah. presenting yeah. it to you in a different way. When you played for England or for Newcastle Falcons or for Toulon, you were representing those concepts, but you are not, in that moment, you're not the embodiment of Toulon. <laughs> you're not the embodiment yeah, exactly. of England yeah. because yeah, exactly. that, that imagined community, as, as, it, there are, as nations are often called, means something slightly different to everybody. But if it means something really deep and important to you and in your team environment or in the relationship between where we get our information. And, and then, like you said, it is the people you surround yourself with. I think we can be a bit more upfront. And certainly, I remember taking a teacher training course when I was completing my PhD. And one of the things that at first I, I found really challenging to accept was, you know, this person who'd been a teacher for a very long time and teaches people to be teachers said, it's totally okay to say at your class, if they ask you a question, I don't know. And at first I was like, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But, you know, you learn from experience and you learn from being in that environment that that's much better than trying to fake it. That's much, much better than trying to blag it. And the beautiful thing about the subject area that I work in is the media changes so rapidly all of the time. And you can't possibly keep up with it all. It's like I remember reading about TikTok before it really came to the UK. It, it was available, but it wasn't really very popular. But I read about it in, in an Australian article where it had already kind of really taken off. And I was like, I'm going to have to learn about this because my students will know it and they'll know it better than me. And I was on it for maybe 20, 25 minutes. And I was like, <laughs> I don't understand this space. And also this is so infant in British culture that by the time I get to, because it was over the summer. So by the time I get to September, when my students come back and we start working with them again, it'll be totally different than it is now. And so in many ways, they're telling me more about media, contemporary media than I can tell them. Or what, what I can do is say, that idea or that example that you're drawing on is really interesting. And there is a theory that really relates to that. Or there's a, a, a particular thinker or a concept that really speaks to what you're seeing. And it's great that you're seeing that and I can help you articulate what those connections are. And that can only be empowered by one of us admitting, at least, that I don't know. And it always sounds like a really cheesy thing to say to students when they first arrive and to remind students who are in their say, second or third year or in a master's degree. But we always say to them, it's like, you will teach us things, particularly about media. And I think most of them probably think that's just a corny line that we give to them, but it's really not because we have our limitations about what we know. I certainly don't know everything about media. I certainly don't know everything about media theory. And I think we would all be better off. I don't know if that will ever kind of come to it where we can just be upfront with journalists saying we don't know but we're doing our best because I think there is such a, 
a pressure for scoops. There's such a pressure to break a story. And those are real pressures. And like you said, they have the same pressures that many of us do. It's like, if I don't do this, I might lose my job or I might have to go and work for a different institution. It's like, there are things that are required of me in this role that mean I can pay my bills. And that human element, I think, would be nurtured more if we could be a little bit more upfront. But I try and instill that in students and people I talk to, to say, just think a little bit more carefully about what is being given to you. And you can choose what you do with it. You don't have to lash out at something that you don't agree with. It's up to you how you respond to that. I heard you say that in a YouTube clip when I was definitely not obsessively preparing for this interview, when you said like, I think it was something, I'll paraphrase because my memory's not all that brilliant, but it was something like, you can throw water on me, but it's up to me how I deal with that. Yeah. It's up to me how I feel in response to that. And I think if we're all a little bit aware that there are human interactions and creativity on both sides, creativity is inherently subjective. There is no objective creativity. And it would be selfish of us to expect that everything could align and would speak to exactly what it is that we feel. And we would never grow. We would never learn things and we would never adapt and change our minds. So whether that actually happens, I really can't say. I really don't know. But I'm trying my best to not just live that myself, but I'm trying my best to encourage students to broaden the way they think about that in the hope that that might happen. Do you know, I, I think it's, it's a really big opportunity because the human potential idea and the eye and the exploration that is, is that it's all on the inside, certainly first. Yes, you can look and say, well, if this wasn't the case, things would be easier. But it's a case of saying, but it's not worth looking outside until you've done all the inside stuff. And you kind of realise after a while that you're never going to get to the end of the inside stuff. But whilst you're busy doing it, you realise it includes the outside. It actually, it is the outside as you're working on the inside. And I think what that's doing for me listening to this is that I know in my time, certainly playing, reading reports about me on the on the field. Now, I might have been playing, I was 34, 35 years old. I've been playing professionally over half my entire life by that point. I'd been everywhere you could possibly imagine. I had played with every type of, well, not every type, but so many different types of players from all different countries, so many different coaches, wins, losses, all these things. And yet you're still reading a paper and you're desperate for some kind of straight answer. And you want the guarantee, you want the clarity, you want it because you're still reading it and it makes you, oh, it's, it's other people's opinion. It represents other people's opinion. And of course, everything I'm talking about growth as you're talking about is about the grey, is about you do what you want to do. And this emotion I've got about needing this, it's the emotion where the answer is. Not in if I can just sort it out. But if this guy or this woman who hasn't really played the game, you know, hasn't done this thing, but certainly I'm not, you know, not saying they don't have a very valid opinion, but you're going to say, you know, that what they say is apparently canvassing so much opinion and it's going to make that massive difference to me. Whereas if I don't need that, I'll inspire the change I want in the world by looking for those things. And I think that's really, really key. The other part of it is with that need to know is that buying into what we're told in such a strong way is the opposite of creativity. It's a bit like, I think, educating people through the same system, hoping that one of them's going to change the future. You're almost saying what we need you to do is be irrational, 
We need you to be random. You've got to be, it's like the Neo in the Matrix. You have to be the one. And in a way, it's kind of like this idea about the awareness we keep speaking about, that extra awareness. You need to be the one that says all of this stuff around me, what's happening now and what's happened. Yes, it's interesting, but I can't let it touch my ability to dream of the future. Because if I have to dream through the parameters given to me by what we've all manifested before, we can't step out of that cycle. And I'm sort of looking for that creativity. I'm wondering how that, well, for a start, you know, one of the things I heard listen, from listening to one of our previous guests, a guy called Sadhguru, he sort of said that it, it, whether you believe it or disbelieve it, it doesn't matter. It's not going to bring you any closer to the truth. The truth is yours to go and explore. And if you're going to try and do it through other people's truths, you know, you're not going to find your truth. I think that's really, really interesting. But that kind of creativity, I'm, I'm interested a little bit about how important is the other side of the media you're talking about? where people are going down those routes of saying, you know, we have a degree of freedom to make films, to make these things about the what's seemingly crazy and the, the irrational, these amazing concepts. You see films, I'm just one off the top of my head, like, a, like an Avatar film or even like The Matrix that I spoke about, which has just got such a beautiful depth to it. How important is that in the opposite of this, in terms of that almost like this is real life and this is escapism? But when the escapism is about distracting you from real life, or is the escapism about triggering that thing in you that's saying, come on, what can you dream of? How far out of the boundaries can you go? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a massive question. It's a really important question. And there's a couple of things that spring to mind. And firstly is, again, I don't necessarily think that we have to draw a binary between escapism and real life you know something like the matrix is a film that's all about the philosophy of what Absolutely. is real and what's yeah. not and i yeah. and that is what entertains me about it because it makes me think about these questions that you can't possibly come up with an answer to because they're inherently about personal philosophy they're about ideas around postmodernism, which is about as complicated as it can get in terms of trying to understand it let alone you know i try and i try to teach it probably quite badly but the thing that springs to mind in terms of the creativity and the idea of like people being told what isn't required from them can be really stifling and the thing that springs to mind is for our third year undergraduate students so if they're studying full-time that's the final year before they complete their degree so it's about it's the most advanced stage of their studies on an undergraduate degree my colleague wayne johnson and i we co-teach a module called futures and the whole idea of that module is to think about what the future of media might look like. Not will, because we, we can't know. And it forces us, the whole rubric of that module forces us to say, we don't know. But wouldn't it be exciting to think about what it could be? But one of the things that we do a lot there is try and understand and impress upon the students how history can be such an important marker of what might come afterwards. So, for instance, when we talked about, you know, you and I spoke about anxieties of not being certain about the legitimacy of information. And I said, you know, earlier on that those anxieties have always existed in relation to the new. So the written word, when it was a new technology, when it was a new invention, instilled fear, quite literally to some people, the fear of God, that the infrastructure of an oral society would be undermined and that the status quo, the way of life, would be basically, like, like you said, infected or in somehow undermined by that. So if the written word generated that much animosity, anxiety, uncertainty, 
it shouldn't really be a great surprise to us that things like social media and you know increasing screen presences are also generating anxiety now. People got you know very anxious about Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. The railroad was something that inspired fear and uncertainty in people. And we tried to point to those things on this module and say, if this is something that regularly does happen, we just regularly respond to the new with uncertainty. But what we're not necessarily always good at is accepting that uncertainty doesn't have to be inherently uncomfortable or overwhelming. And so in that module, we ask students to give presentations and the only rule we give them, other than that it's five minutes per person, so we give them a time limit because we have to for practical reasons, but the only other rule, essential criteria, is we want you to make a prediction about anything at all. It could be next week, it could be 20 years from now, it could be 50 years from now. We want you to make a prediction about something you think relatively realistically might happen in relation to the media. And it could be about things on the module, like we explore like what loneliness might look like in an increasingly technologized world. We think about what virtual reality might do as a, as a kind of evolving industry. But it's like you can pick something completely off the wall that's not connected to what we've taught about here directly. And one of the things that we notice among some students is that that can be an uncomfortable space to be in. You've got very few instructions and the only thing we want you to do is make a prediction and you can't know if it's going to come true. And, and what we have to kind of elicit from them is it doesn't matter if it comes true or not. What we're trying to assess and what we're trying to kind of get you doing more effectively is thinking creatively, using the information you've got, using evidence and examples that have already happened or that exist now. Can you make some sort of reasoned creative leap about what that might do? And what we find is that it, it can be an uncomfortable space for students, but in terms of the level of achievement, and I will say that quite a lot of over the years, quite a lot of the predictions do actually tend to be pretty on the nose in one way or the other. What we tend to find is that what students eventually, for the most part, get really good at breaking out of that mould, but, but it takes a bit of time to get your head around like, well, hang on, I actually don't have many limitations here. <laughs> but it would be really comfortable if, if, Matt, if Matt and Wayne could spell out exactly what it is that would, that would get us you know, a first-class result or a 2-1. Or and it's like, I really just want to say to you, don't worry about that. It's like, because if you can get into that mode of using the things around you creatively, informatively, and make reasoned assumptions, no one's going to bite your head off if it doesn't come true. If you can think creatively, and, out, and like you said, outside the box, go past that wall and don't even necessarily try and reinforce it. Just see what's on the other side of it. And I think my role in terms of, you know, publications and things can do that. But I certainly, teaching and working with students is is my ultimate passion. It's my favourite part of my job. It's the part of my job I think I'm best at. And when I see students able to kind of push themselves out of those c constraints, it's one of the best feelings you can have. There's just something massive in this, which is speaking about, you mentioned about the real life idea, that there is some kind of actual real life the same way that there is actually a truth that news can can present not represent or attempt to represent there is actually a truth apparently but as you mentioned it's based on on an assumption at the basis that says well hold on i don't know anything because i don't even know as we've done on the human potential we, we love to go into this space of i don't even know anything about me when i really really look at it 
I don't know anything about me. I have to make one assumption on which I can start building. One of our guests was talking about how we know nothing about the universe. We don't know anything about it, but we seem to be able to use it to our gain or to our end or whatever. And in the same way, you can say, I know nothing. So we base it on an assumption that's made in every single moment. And if we can keep releasing those assumptions, we get closer to that oneness and that connection. But it's really, really interesting hearing you talk about those things because you mentioned about creativity and coming back to that real life idea. I sort of had it in my memory for a long time. Whilst those emotional reactions are still stuck in those memories, it almost ties them into a solid shape that is truth. And then everything that you try to come up with is a projection or a representation of that solid shape. Yeah, you try and change the shape enough, but it's a fight and you try and see things differently, but that's as much as you can do. But when you, the emotional glue, when you remove those emotions, the memory becomes free floating and each little memory can be placed in any different order with other memories. And I'm a terrible one for, if I was a news outlet, I'd, people would see through me immediately because you could say to me, tell us about your drop goal in 2003, I'll tell you. Then you tell me, you say 10 minutes time, just tell me about it again. I'll give you a different story. Not because I'm trying to be clever, but because you catch me in a slightly different mood, depending on where my passion's taking me, I'll tell you the memory through that. I think releasing that emotional stickiness and allowing that stuff to become just opportunity, everything you've been through becomes wisdom and opportunity and allowing that, is the creativity, but when things are presented to us in that sort of solid form through the emotions that everyone's going through, I think there's a kind of a calling for everyone to be able to to do their part of the work, to say, well, you know, you can't go out there and try and make everyone else feel less anxious, but take what's emotionally stuck in you and start seeing if you can just release it, be with it, be welcome it, lovingly welcome it, allow it to go where it's been meaning to go, and then see what creativity comes up in you. It's kind of, well, if everyone did their bit, this would be the new society. But when we speak about society or the system of media, we're kind of almost like, it's a thing over there that doesn't involve me. Society is this thing that keeps trying to tell me stuff. But when you're telling someone else stuff, you're, you're society as well, you're society's messenger. So you know, what society do you want to represent? As you mentioned about that future, that vision, being able to see that picture and say, well, what is it I really, really want? And now that we have social media and we have these kind of independent individual channels where people can express their views and people can go and research now all different areas, not just, okay, this is the channel I'm, I'm given, this is the voice I'm given to me. It's actually, you know, I can go and find out what different people are thinking. It's then the question of when people are doing it through a social channel, a bit like this, you know, when I was playing rugby, I started off as being like, I wonder what I can achieve. And then it became, geez, people like me for doing this. I'll try and do more of that. And this channel is an interesting one for me on this podcast to be like, okay, well, I think it's resonating with people. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know I, I love everyone that listens so much, but if I then start saying, okay, people make brilliant comments and questions and I use them to be like, oh, it's inspiring me to, to, to sort of what's, what's coming up in me rather than to try and say, well, we better do this, we better do that because we want to be in that space. But with social media, is there that new platform, as you mentioned, the written word has then become the internet in a way, hasn't it, that people are now fearing? 
But is there a way that that holds the capacity you think for this change? Yeah, what's your research into social media take? Because obviously you get a lot of the doom and gloom stories with regard to the isolation, the loneliness, the egotistical, this kind of fake it till you make it, but in your best sort of research. So from a, a kind of general understanding, I mean, in relation to mental health, I don't think the picture is particularly good. I, th- I think there are there's potential for the picture to get a lot better. And again, I, I think I could never pinpoint it into like good and bad. So for mental health, things like being able to create a podcast out of ostensibly nothing, the availability of digital apps that w- will help people learn things like meditation and online support groups tend to get a bit lost in the conversation. But in a more general sense, separate from strictly mental health, I think social media could look like whatever the majority of its user base wants it to. And I think that's, and this is an amazing thing that there's a media scholar called Henry Jenkins that has talked about this idea since the kind of early 2000s, what he calls convergence culture or a participatory culture, which is sometimes criticized for being overly romantic, but I think there's a real kernel of truth that we can see in the the process playing out is that increasingly we do have more creative agency, we have more opportunities to, you know, we have to abide by terms and conditions on a social media platform or else our account might get removed. But there's an awful lot of flexibility in the things that we can do. And one of the things that is great about social networking and digital social media in the view of people like Jenkins, and I, I agree with him, is a lot of the really cool stuff that comes out of those, whether it's new features or new styles of memes or new ways of delivering information, tend to actually come from the users, not the creators. So for instance, on a platform like Twitter, which is a, a platform I use on a personal basis quite a lot, things as fundamental as the retweeting, being able to like, being able to use the app logo to specifically connect someone to what you're saying, that all came from manual things users were doing, and then Twitter made them official features. And, and actually, that happens way more frequently than you might you know, realistically expect. TikTok gives a platform, but people are experimenting all the time with the type of content they produce there. And again, that's you know, in, in certain areas of TikTok, whether it's particular styles or particular personalities that are on there, they're finding amazing and uplifting ways to get people engaged in, say, politics who wouldn't necessarily be engaged by more traditional understandings of media. And I think Twitter and Facebook were really at the forefront of that before, say, TikTok. That these platforms, people started using them in ways to distribute information. They started finding things that weren't necessarily intended by the creators. People, And this is what Jenkins says, is people will find a way to get the experience they want and if enough people start to latch onto it and recycle it, that's firstly how those features evolve and how these platforms evolve creatively. But if you, if you see enough of that take hold mimetically, those producers will then tend to make it easier for people to do the thing they want to do. And I think that is incredibly important because our kind of conceptions of mainstream broadcast media like radio, TV, journalism... That's not necessarily true of a lot of those spaces in which there is this divide between producer, distributor and receiver. It doesn't mean we don't still have choice and agency in how we respond to that information, but our capability to help shape it directly, very, very restricted compared to what social media and social networking 
and sites like Instagram and TikTok at the moment can offer, I think we're, like, we're still scratching the surface. And some of these platforms might not last. We might not be able to conceive of them you know, in five, 10 years. Maybe we don't have TikTok anymore. Maybe Facebook finally goes the way of MySpace and Bebo and get, goes out of fashion. But something will always be there that people are, are experimenting with. It's just about encouraging more people, giving them the literacy, the tools, the ability, and, and the freedom to hopefully have more people engaging in that process could make social media something really amazing for creativity. I think it's already amazing for creativity, but it could be anything that people realistically want it to be if enough people can kind of channel their creativity that way. I think there's definitely an adaptability and a flexibility and a, and a, a real spontaneity about how things can come about using those kind of platforms. Like you said before, you know, the, the ability to connect with people that's now available through the social media sites, you know, in order to get projects up and running underway at speed to respond a lot more to callings rather than have to go through so much of this sort of structural red tape to get yourself there. There's all these opportunities to be a lot more responsive, which I think is brilliant. And also people to connect, to, to get their skill sets out there. Hopefully that it doesn't have to come through, you know, well, yeah, this is my formal education that which has been great and and of course that's really really important but people that haven't had those opportunities can also have a showcase to be able to say look what i'm able to do and this is my creativity i think it's all beautiful now i'm going to throw a question at you what do you think social media and broadcasting reporting journalism types everything in those different formats what does media then start to look like when you have a population that is not divided by those energies you spoke about like anxiety or like aggression, like or or the identities of nationalism or or whether it be race or what does it look like for you in let's throw it out there fifty years? So I throw another sort of like vari- variable in there that you've now got technological advances. Yeah, what do you think that world looks like? What does media? How much of a role does media still have? And if it does, what's it doing? I know how my students feel now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. Certainly, there will be a media infrastructure of some form. You can't conceive of humanity without the potential for communication and for collaboration. And so what it specifically looks like in terms of infrastructure and industry is really difficult to say. But I think in terms of hopefully, and I think many of us really are looking forward to a day when this might be the case, is that we do have less division, less polarity. It is one of the things, you know, I've mentioned deconstructing binaries more than once in this chat, because I think at the moment it is something that is so powerful at the moment is like this kind of, there's so much tribalism about what side of an issue you're on or what, or like if you're part of a group or if you're not. And those can be really quite destructive and unhealthy, toxic situations to be in and, and environments to exist in. And if we, as I expect, we probably will eventually move past that or at least have something like you said maybe more of a kind of consensus more of a kind of majority and any form of less division i actually think will lead to more fragmented media but i don't mean that in a in any sort of skeptical or cynical way i think if there was more of an acceptance among a, a, a series of populations it would vary from country to country from age group to age group etc and i but i think that's what would be great is if people were more comfortable within themselves at accepting anxiety, 
And uh, you know, my, my own personal counselor once said to me, he's like, we need anxiety. It's a motivator. It is something in, really influential. It needs to be managed and it needs to be responded to maturely and carefully, but we do need anxiety because otherwise it harkens me back to something that I think Mitu Steroni said in one of your previous episodes. It's like, we need to have that process of going through the adaptation gap because otherwise you can't grow. But I think if more people were to become more comfortable with the fact that you won't always live without anxiety, you won't always live with, you know, without uncertainty, but people were less polarized and our social structures were less polarized. I think it would lead to an explosion of creativity. And so we would see lots of different things across media, whether it is in fictional representation, in current affairs, in public dialogue. So I think if there was more consensus, it might seem counterintuitive or kind of unexpected in some way, but I think that would actually lead to a greater diversification across media, whatever form that happened to be. Probably platforms we couldn't even think of at the moment. Because that collective creativity, it still already has power and momentum now. So I, I hope very much so that that just continues to expand as you know, each generation will be more and more digitally aware, digitally literate. It might even be post-digital. You just don't know. You know it, it could be in 50 years that our infrastructure has conceived of something else or has reverted to something else. I just, it's difficult to say, but I think whatever it will be, will always be a hub for potential diverse creativity. I have very little doubt about yeah, that. I think it's, it's really, it's really cool. I mean, I'm sort of thinking about that journey for me <clears throat> and just what becomes of interest to you as you ground yourself in more of a, an untouchable self-worth. It's not to say that you measure up favorably in those external factors anymore it doesn't mean you're the fastest you're the best you're, you're the, the most successful it doesn't mean that at all but just as coming to that internal sort of space of at least you know stability and grounding the excitement and passion and and what you are looking for as you mentioned from a creative standpoint start to come to the front rather than when you're in that non sort of feeling valuable space when it's what you're against that comes to the front as your primary motivator. I'm just looking at those sort of celebrity culture magazines before when you're looking at people saying, oh, I kind of like it that you're struggling. For some reason, I hate to say it, but I do because I don't like the fact that you can have everything and I don't. And now you're getting a taste of what it's like, all this kind of rubbish. And yet we had an, an episode just recently that was talking about the power of group intention to, to have manifest incredible actual life transformations and healings and you sort of think imagine if you had a a publication that put on it people that were having a tough time and people had such compassion that when they read it they couldn't help but channel a sense of well-wishing all at the same time and so those huge number of readerships were creating these amazing types of things or maybe that people's passions were, were inspiring that like you said explosion of creativity and suddenly you've got mini einsteins everywhere people that have challenged the norm to say, I'm not going to go through the steps of one, two, three of the past to try and get to four of the future. I'm going from now and seeing what's here. I'm, disp yeah, I'm disposing of all those orders and numbers. I'm just going, what the hell? And to think of that, I think it's, it's kind of so cool. F for you personally, what's your life like now with, with media? You, like you said, you have your own challenges 
what is it you you kind of long for if you like in that media space how do you want to spend your life what do you want to be surrounded with what is it with you know you mentioned about the love of teaching and being in that space being able to share and it sounds like creativity is a big one for you as well you know what what do you think is is that calling in you that's kind of coming out through what you do and and maybe what you long for in the future in terms of media i think certainly one of the things professionally that sort of is the most enriching to me is working with students, seeing them grow and develop, challenging their thinking. That gives me immense energy a lot of the time. But also, I think, as many of us will know, I think you probably more acutely than I, given what, what you know your career has been, that comes with a media spotlight attached to it through a lot of the time. It will also require personal work as well. I would like to be able, like everyone, to have a better work-life balance. But you can't it's the binary problem again. You cannot just fundamentally, totally separate your personal and professional life, particularly in a subject like media where I play video games. I like scrolling my phone. I love a box set. So media plays a part in my private life as well. So on, on a personal basis, just trying to be more consistent with my relationship to anxiety and to depression, but anxiety in particular, because what I've found in my own personal experience is anxiety tends to, for me, attack the things I really care about. So I'm a really keen cook. I love to cook. I love, I love to eat well and usually not very, usually eat quite badly. <laughs> but, but when, before I had any sense of, you know, seeking help and being on medication and, you know, practicing things like mindfulness and going through all those stages to try and be more in control, I guess, or, or at least more at peace with my situation, at its height, my anxiety would attack my ability to eat. Like I would go into restaurants and have panic attacks. I would cook food and then feel unable to eat it. And, and it would attack my relationship. You know, my partner and I are cooking. It's a thing we both love to do and we do it together regularly. And it would just ruin any time we spent together if all of a sudden, and she's, you know, she's amazingly understanding and compassionate about that, but it would make me feel terrible. And the other thing that my anxiety used to really attack was teaching. So I've resonated, you know, from things I've heard you say elsewhere on this podcast and in interviews elsewhere, that like the panic before a game could be so overwhelming. But the minute the whistle goes, you're just in a different space. And I found that like a very similar experience in that at my worst, this hasn't been the case for quite a while now, thankfully, but at my worst, I was so panicked about going to teach that you know, I would make myself ill. I would I would be in a toilet heaving and feeling just completely out of control physically and just feeling like I can't do this. Every part of me wants to, and I've prepped a session, I, I know the students and I really want to do this, but I can't. And at a certain point, like you talked about earlier, that kind of pressure of like, but if I don't, I don't have a job. Like if I don't, like I'm not doing anything. And so somehow I get myself in the room and after five, 10 minutes of feeling uncomfortable, I could teach a two hour session, a three hour session. And I would be exhausted afterwards because the amount of adrenaline and energy you need to kind of, to facilitate that is intense, but it would be like, what on earth was I so worried about? So like for me going forwards professionally, you know, I'd like to, my career to grow as, as most people would, but I, you know, I'd like to continue and hopefully refine my ability to sort of not let the inevitable anxiety and depressive moments of my life that I will have again, you know, I accept that whether I'm on medication for the rest of my life or not, or whether I, you know, have counseling at certain point, I, there will be moments where I don't feel great. That is just 
that's something I can accept. But what I hope for is a situation where that doesn't inhibit me from doing the things that can be really productive, that really do chime with my passion, whether it's cooking at home or teaching at work. And so far recently, that journey seems to be going relatively well. So in terms of what I want, I just want that journey to keep going well and for me to hopefully just keep getting better at what I do. Do you know what? I, I think it's there's a couple of things I'd like to sort of end on here. And it's really important for me to kind of, I think, say this is in that in every time I speak to an, anyone, it's so powerful that during the conversation and after, just everything gets removed for me. And you just connect on a level of just, there's an energy here. There's a, I don't even know what you are, I don't know what I am, but there's a sharing happening here. And it's not hierarchical. It's not one person is playing this role, one person is playing that role. It's like you say, you go into a room when you're trying to teach. The harder part is being like, I have to teach these kids. You're like, but then you've just sort of mentioned in this podcast that actually most of the time they're teaching you. You're kind yeah. of like, well, hold on. If you... And then to realise as well that you're as old as the hills and that, so am I. But if we want to play the whole this life game, then I'm a certain age, I've done this, you've done that. And now we can, and it's like, but it's not that. When you remove all that, you're like, hold on, there's something immensely valuable about all this. And even just hearing you speak then, we're talking about what can change a system or a society. It's one person in the middle of it who's willing to look at that space of being like, okay, I'm just going to remember, not just try and remember, but I'm going to deeply remember that I went into that discomfort and out of it came the opportunity, the passion, the connection. And then suddenly that trigger to say, at some point, don't take that discomfort away, please. That the other part of you is asking for, I take it away and in the change room for the game, take it away. Give me the back door out. I'll go, I'll leg it. Take it away. Give me the result now. I won't even play the game. Just give me the trophy. Give me the respect. Let people still think I'm okay at my job. But then at some point, there's another yearning that says, don't take that away. As you said, the, the importance of that stress to say that there's a deeper message to it. Something that's saying without it, what have you got? What have you got? And that stress is, it. it's not a duty. I think it's a calling. Yeah, and, mm. and I'd, I would really, really like to thank you for sharing yours with us on this. And I kind of love the fact that you mentioned about having, you know, like preparing all day, and having that yeah. sense about it. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the whistle goes and it's kind of like, so Matt, you know, great to see you. Let's have a chat. And you have those first few moments of being like, I'm, I'm just finding my feet. You know, yeah. I've just been tackled. All right. I've thrown my first pass, made my first kick. And you're kind of like, I'm in the game. We're all good. And like you said, yeah. you know, I, I, it's not just I can do this. There's something asking you to do this. Because if you don't do it when you can, now that's a big loss. And if something's asking you to do it and you know everything's pointing you there, it's like there's a big service being provided and it's been of great service to me and it's awesome you know I, I never thought I'd be here I never thought I'd be talking to you I never thought I'd be talking about this media stuff which I have a clue about but it's so exciting it's interesting but that's it's, why I'm here <laughs> exactly and it's and it's it's so awesome I yeah I want to wish you absolutely all the best in everything and just to say you know whatever anxieties you feel certainly around what you were talking about today you know just to know that it's been a pleasure having you and that whether it's been through the vulnerability of those anxieties, being able to converse with you in that state, whatever state it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. 
you know, I envy your students, especially if there's, there's that kind of reciprocal, you know, mutual offering going on and that you, you're all aware of that. I think that's a beautiful place to be. And we mentioned that humility of that could be possible in the media to say, look, we're doing our best, you're doing your best, let's work together on this rather than that kind of, you will obey our truth and, you know, and the other people from our side saying, oh, you're so this, you're so that. I think it's a beautiful example that with your words and, and what you're bringing is big. So, yeah, mate, a huge thank Th- you. Thank you very much. And, you know, it was a great pleasure for me as well. And all I'm going to do is just keep encouraging my students to take risks, not, not be reckless in the right moments. but And I try and live that too. And that's, you know, a reflection for me on this conversation is like, this conversation was generated out of a risk. Yeah. So if you take them in the right place, the rewards can be really, really great. So yeah, the pleasure was was mine. Just beautiful as well to say, but isn't creativity a risk in this world? Yeah, of course it is. Isn't that what we're talking about, that real life idea that's presented and you want to be creative? It's a risk, but it's you. When you're being creative, it's this surefire thing. You know you're getting you when you're being creative. You're not getting someone else's voice, someone else's system, someone else's... Idea, you're getting you and yeah beautiful yeah get them in that creative space make ask them some more of those 10 year 50 year questions <laughs> i've got plenty up my sleeve don't worry <laughs> beautiful see maybe ask them mine see what you come up with and drop me a line i'd love to hear uh i'll, I'll do it well. yeah lovely hey that's so cool matt thanks so much thank you mate awesome no problem at all another pleasure was all mine So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. But until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. Before I go, I want to say a final thank you to the sponsors of today's podcast, Vitality. For me, the secret to a happy and healthy life is about living consciously. And when we can align those little things we do and decisions we make every day with the life we really want to live, it really makes a difference which is when the team over at Vitality comes in. Their comprehensive cover enables us all to live a happier, healthier life, whether it's through offering discounts on gym memberships at Virgin Active, Nuffield Health or Pure Gym, or on activity trackers from Garmin, Polar and Samsung. For me, I've been an ambassador with Vitality for several years now, and undoubtedly the feeling of true support when someone cares about you and your health and your quality of life, it makes a massive difference. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply.